All right, well, it is time to get started. So good morning. Good morning to all of you just joining in at the Calvary page, our YouTube page, or maybe even the Facebook page. Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I'm David Kaposha. We're moving along in our chronological study of the Bible. Today we move out of the book of Judges and into an account that takes place during the time of the Judges, and that is the account of Naomi and Ruth. Now, whereas the book of Judges is an increasingly depressing record of Israel's unfaithfulness to God and God's discipline and the cycle of repentance and discipline that keeps going on in the book of Judges, the book of Ruth is a truly encouraging narrative about how God works restoration and redemption for a downcast Israelite family. This is a beloved book of the Bible, but what does God want us to learn from the book of Ruth? And how can we apply it to our lives today, even as we continue in a broken world where trouble and evil continues to abound? This is, a very, this is another very relevant book for our lives. How are we to apply it? Let's find out together today. And we'll start our time with some prayer. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word and Lord I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain it well, explain it accurately and God I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who listen to be encouraged, transformed and motivated Lord to cling to you ever more tightly no matter the troubles of life or where we've gone astray help us to return to you in Jesus name, Amen If you would please take your Bibles and open to the book of Ruth chapter 1 book of Ruth chapter 1 this is right after the book of Judges, toward the beginning of the Old Testament. We're going to start with just looking at the beginning situation in the book of Ruth. Ruth 1 verses 1 to 5. This is where we see calamity that befalls a certain family in Israel. Follow along with me as I read the first five verses. Ruth chapter 1. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab and with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Alright, let's make some observations on just this first section. Notice we're told when all this takes place. We're in the days when the judges governed, or and also when there was a famine in the land. So, as I said, we're in the book of Judges, period. But when exactly in that period? It's a little hard to say because... There aren't that many time indicators in the book of Ruth, but there is a connection to David. There's a connection between the woman Ruth and David mentioned at the end of the book that helps us give a rough, rough estimate as to when these events are taking place. Ruth chapter 4 verses 21 to 22 shows us that Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. Since David was probably born around 1040 BC, Ruth didn't live that much before that. So we're probably looking at the latter part of the judges period around 1125 BC. That's when this story takes place. Now the famine mentioned doesn't appear to be mentioned in the book of Judges. The book of Judges doesn't have to report every event in Israel. 
during the judges period. So this is an unmentioned famine. And we don't know why this famine has come upon Israel. However, according to the Torah, those first five books of Moses, what is one primary reason why famine might come upon Israel? Namely, the people's sin. God says, if you will follow after me, you will have abundance in the land. You will have prosperity. You're faithful to me. I will bless you. But if you turn against me, violate the terms of my covenant, I'll be faithful to discipline you. And one of the ways I'll do that is with famine. I'll withhold rain or I'll bring oppressors against you who will take your food one way or the other. The book of Ruth doesn't say that's what's going on here, but there's a strong possibility considering what goes on in the judges period. For deliverance from famine then, if it is indeed a judgment of God, what must the people of Israel do? They must repent and turn back to Yahweh. Now the text doesn't tell us about tell us much about Elimelech or his spiritual state, but Elimelech, this head of the family, notice what he decides to do. He decides that his family will leave Israel and, and go to Moab during this time of famine. Elimelech and Naomi, their two sons, they leave Bethlehem, a town or city whose name means house of bread, and they go east across the Jordan to Moab. You can see, uh, you can see a little bit of what that looks like on the, with the map on the screen. Now Moab, let's remember, is a pagan land. He's a descendant of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They were actually a frequent enemy of Israel. They even attack Israel at one point during the Judges period. Yet this is where our text says Elimelech goes to sojourn into Moab. Now sojourn means that Elimelech only planned to stay there temporarily. But actually he dies in Moab. He stays there permanently. And notice what his two sons do. They take Moabite wives for themselves. Now, did God permit Israelites to intermarry with Moabites? Well, not exactly. The principle in Deuteronomy 25, where God commanded the people not to intermarry with the Canaanites, the people who lived in the land, it was partly due to the fact that the Canaanites were idolaters. God says you are not to marry with an idolatrous people. This certainly would have applied to the Moabites, who were also idolaters. They were known to serve the god Shemosh. And yet, Naomi's two sons take wives from the Moabites. Now notice how long the text says that Naomi and her two surviving sons live in Moab. Ten years. That's a pretty long sojourn. Now the text isn't, isn't clear when during those ten years Elimelech dies or when the sons take wives. But after those ten years, Malon and Kilian both die. And without any children. Which is a big deal. No children over those 10 years, and they leave behind a house of three widows. Now, this is a pretty profound family tragedy. All the men are gone, no children to prolong the line, and all within 10 years. This is extremely difficult circumstances, and this would have resulted in much mourning in, in the house of Elimelech. Now, let's pause for a moment to ask an interpretation question. This is kind of a big one for understanding the book of Ruth. Was it wrong for Elimelech and Naomi to sojourn in idolatrous Moab during the famine? This is a big question, but a difficult question, because there are a lot of factors in play. On the one hand, the author of Ruth does not mention that this leaving Israel was wrong. 
Uh, their bad circumstances that overtake them in Moab are not necessarily because God's chastening them. Bad things happen even when God is not displeased with a person. The Moabite women, they may have converted, at least nominally, to Judaism before Malon and Kilian married them. Other righteous persons like Abraham, Jacob, and David, they also flee Israel during a time of danger or famine. And common sense would seem to direct one to remove himself and his family from a place of danger or deprivation when possible. So if there's a famine in one place, leave that place and go to where there isn't a famine. That's on the side of saying it's not wrong that they left Israel. But on the other hand, just because the author doesn't condemn their action doesn't mean that he approved it. Old Testament narrative often describes evil actions in the narrative without giving comment on them. Perhaps that's happening here. And while bad circumstances, difficult circumstances, are not always indicators of God's pleasure or displeasure, and Mosaic Covenant did specifically promise Israel that God would chasten them nationally and even individually for disobedience. As to the conversion of Orpah and Ruth, it's very unlikely that they truly believed in Yahweh before their Jewish husbands married them. Orpah is quite willing to return to her old gods, as we'll see in a moment. Also, the situation of those who sojourned away from Israel, like Abraham, Jacob, and David, they're not exactly parallel to what we see here in Ruth. Abraham and Jacob, first of all, they never settled in Israel. They were sojourners. And so they didn't necessarily need to stay in Canaan permanently. Though it is interesting that, if you remember, when Abraham is looking to obtain a wife for Isaac, he is adamant that Isaac not be removed from the land. He says, even to get a wife, don't take my son away from the land of Canaan. Which is interesting. And when it comes to David, though David flees Israel to get away from Saul, he did not necessarily do right when he did so. Because in the context of that flight, 1 Samuel 27, well actually the first verse of 1 Samuel 27, you have David despairing that God will be able to take care of him in Israel. He says, surely I will perish by the hand of Saul if I don't leave. Which is not true because God has been preserving David's life in Israel for years up to that point. Moreover, in the previous chapter, in 1 Samuel 26, verses 19 to 20, David actually confronts Saul, after being miraculously delivered from Saul's hand, he confronts Saul about how evil it is that Saul would try to drive David away from Israel because Israel is the place, or Canaan is the place of Israel's inheritance and it is the place of God's presence. And God's presence is always associated with blessing. And he says, how dare you try and get me to leave this land? And then the very next chapter, he leaves voluntarily. Finally, though it is rational to flee from danger, we must remember that flight and sojourn, they bring their own dangers at times. Consider Elimelech and his family. By leaving Israel, they are no longer able to work their land in Bethlehem or to reach out to their brethren for help. They go to a hostile, idolatrous land where the inhabitants might attack or mistreat them. I mean, they attacked Israel before. What makes you think you're going to be safe in Moab? By going to this land, to Moab, the family virtually assures that their unmarried sons will not marry Jewish women. They cut themselves off from the community of the righteous, 
and they subject themselves to all sorts of idolatrous influences. So we've got factors on both sides. Was it wrong for the family to leave Israel? Was it wise? There's not complete agreement among interpreters on this issue. But while I'm mindful that we do not have the full amount of information as to this family situation, I want to be conservative in judgment, I would lean on the side that says Elimelech and his family did do wrong and acted unwisely in leaving Israel. Because Canaan, Israel, that was the place of Israel's inheritance, the place of God's presence, the place of blessing. And even though there's a famine, God would provide for his own, and as the people repented, God would relent from the famine. Now, if you take a slightly different view, I think the implications of this book are still going to be similar. Whether you see this just as calamity that was not due to any particular sin, or the things that happened to uh, Elimelech's family are partly due to their own sin, still what we see unfold in this book is going to bring great instruction and encouragement to us today. Because we see, as, as I'll emphasize later on, God as the restorer and the redeemer. Whether someone was previously in sin, or whether someone simply experienced the difficulties of life and the curse of this world. But certainly, by the time we come to the end of verse 5 in Ruth, this is a very tragic situation that has unfolded. But this is only the beginning of the story. We might be asking ourselves right at the beginning, well, is, is Naomi and her family just doomed to grief for the rest of their lives? Let's read on. Look at verses 6 and 7. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, that is Yahweh, had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Well, we're not going to read the next little section here. We'll skip the next ten or so verses. But we see here in just these two verses, in verses 6 and 7, that the famine in Israel has come to an end. This means that Probably Israel has returned to the Lord and he's brought about this deliverance. He's sent the rain again. But this gives occasion for Naomi to return to the land from which she set out. And to return to Yahweh, really. Now, in verses 8 to 14, we see that while Naomi's daughters-in-law, they've developed a great affection for her, Naomi tells them to return to their families. Find new husbands, because she's not really going to be able to provide for them. But in verses 15 to 22, right after Orpah kisses her mother, good, mother-in-law goodbye, Ruth won't leave. Let's take a look at the conversation that takes place. Ruth 1, verses 15 to 22. It says, Then she, that's Naomi, said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since Yahweh has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's observe this section. We see Naomi urges Ruth, for Ruth's own sake, to return to her people. Look, Ruth, you're young. You can, you can find a new husband. You've got a whole life ahead of you. Why come with me? But Ruth won't be dissuaded. Instead, Ruth promises to Naomi, Your land will be my land. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Ruth even calls down an oath. And notice to whom she appeals. She appeals to Yahweh. She says, May Yahweh judge me with calamity if I leave you at all. This is a significant statement because what kind of life can Ruth expect with Naomi? Naomi, who's just an older widow. Two widows in the land of Israel, they're looking at a life of poverty and hardship, which is exactly what we see in chapter 2. But the pair returns to Bethlehem, and the people are startled by the change that has taken place in Naomi and her family. She even tells them, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara. And there's a significance in those two names. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. Naomi thus says, God has acted very bitterly towards me. The Almighty has acted, uh, acted bitterly. Now she acknowledges that all of this is under the sovereign hand of Yahweh. Her, her theology of God's sovereignty is very good. She says, this came about from Yahweh. I know that this was under his control and from his hand. But notice what she says in verse 21. She acknowledges that Yahweh has witness or testified against me. What would Yahweh possibly witness or testify against Naomi? Would it not be sin? Now it's not clear whether she's referring specifically to her sojourning in Moab or just to sins in general. But she says, I've experienced bitter circumstances from God and I know in a certain sense that this is this is deserved for my sin. He's come after me for my sins. I'm not seeing his mercy. I'm just seeing these difficult circumstances. That appears to be Naomi's perspective. Verse 22 mentions the time that Ruth and Naomi returned in Israel. It's at the beginning of barley harvest. That would be probably around the middle of April. Let's ask a few other interpretation questions before we move on. First, how does Ruth demonstrate surprising faith in Yahweh here, even though she's a Moabitess? Notice, Ruth demands to stay with Naomi. This is an act of great love and loyalty, despite future hardship. Ruth declares that Yahweh will be her God. And she even swears by Yahweh. Ruth, who undoubtedly was a former idolater, she is quite, uh, quite committed 
to the God of Israel now. But how does her attitude compare to Naomi's? Does not Ruth seem vibrant and full of a love and zeal? But Naomi, she kind of seems filled with bitterness. She's lost hope. But she returns to Israel anyways. We're going to see going forward that God is going to be gracious to them both. And let's see how. Look at the next chapter. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. A little bit longer section here. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, and she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty... Go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh reward your work, and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Just a truly beautiful section here. Let's observe the details some of the details. Ruth goes to glean in one of the fields near Bethlehem. Now, what does it mean to glean? It means to pick up the leftovers, the leftovers of a harvest. Now, this word survives in our vocabulary today. We sometimes talk about gleaning information or gleaning lessons, even from the Bible. God actually commanded to allow gleaning in Israel in Leviticus 19. During harvest, Israelites were to make sure that they did not pick up every last bit of grain or every last ripe fruit, they were to not go back over the fields, but leave the extras for the poor, for the widows, and for the strangers, which is the three categories in which Ruth finds herself. She's a poor, widow, and a stranger. Now, the Israelites did not always follow this command to allow for gleaning. There were greedy Israelites who would find ways around it or just ignore it. 
they made sure that no one could glean in their fields or they were extra careful to make sure that there was nothing left to actually be gleaned or they harassed and mistreated those who came to glean so that those gleaners could not stay. And in such a situation, what could the poor, the widows, or the strangers do? They could only cry out to God. But Ruth, she goes out to glean, and notice Naomi doesn't go, it's just Ruth. And verse 3 has an interesting phrase. It says, She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, literally, the Hebrew here is, Her chance chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. That's kind of a weird statement in a book and a society that's recognizing the sovereignty of God. In effect, the author is saying, what a coincidence that she came to Boaz's field. Boaz just happens to be, we're told by the narrator, a man of great wealth. Or it could be translated a man of great valor. The phrase can mean both. He's also a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And notice the kind of man that Boaz is. We can see it from what he does here. He greets his workers in the name of Yahweh. He inquires after Ruth's identity. He refers to Ruth as his daughter. He tells her only to glean in his field and to follow his maids, his female harvesters. It tells her that she will be safe gleaning in his field. He's commanded the servants not to touch or mistreat her. And that could have been a problem for Ruth because as a foreigner, we know that foreigners are often targets in different societies, especially if those foreigners come from enemy nations. She could have been harassed. She could have been abused. But he made sure that that would not happen in his field. And he tells her to drink even from the water jars that the servants drew the water for whenever Ruth gets thirsty. This is great generosity from Boaz. And Ruth reacts appropriately. She falls on her face. She expresses wondrous gratitude for such favor, especially to a foreigner. She asks him why. Boaz, why are you being so good to me? And notice the reason that he gives. He says, it's because of the kindness that you've shown to Naomi and the faith that you've shown in God to live in Israel and to trust in God for provision. Now, I mentioned this before when we talked about Rahab, but there's a connection between Boaz and foreigners. According to the genealogy of Matthew 1, we find that Boaz is actually a descendant of Rahab. Uh, maybe not the son, probably not the son, but the grandson or something like that. Rahab, who was the former Canaanite harlot from Jericho, she became a great woman of faith. And Boaz is from her line. She had intermarried with uh, an Israelite. And so perhaps that also plays a role in God sovereignly bringing someone who would show favor to another foreigner. And that is to Ruth. Boaz pronounces a blessing on Ruth and he mentions an interesting phrase. He tells Ruth, you've sought refuge under Yahweh's wings. That is a great metaphor. A metaphor of care, provision, protection, just like chicks find care and protection under the wings of their mother, their mother hen or their mother bird. Boaz says, this is what you've done with Yahweh. Even in your difficult state, you've come to Yahweh for refuge and therefore I want to help you. Another interesting aspect is that this word translated wings, it, could, it really refers to tips or edges. 
And sometimes it's applied to birds' wings, but other times it's applied to garments. So another way to translate this statement from Boaz would be, you've sought refuge under Yahweh's garment. You've sought covering under Yahweh's fringes. That's what the term can mean. Ruth thanks Boaz for this overwhelming kindness, and she acknowledges her unworthiness. Now, I've got a bunch of interpretation questions that we need to go over from this section. A lot, a lot of interesting things happening here. First, how have Naomi and Ruth proved opposite to one another when it comes to seeking shelter? Are you noticing this? We could take the statement from, I think, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 11, when Boaz is talking about what Ruth has done. He says, you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Isn't that exactly what Naomi did? But in reverse, Naomi sought refuge in, uh, she, she was an Israelite who sought shelter away from God in Moab. And what did she find? Ruin. But Ruth, she's a Moabite who's looked for shelter under God in the land of Israel. And what has she found? Favor. She's found grace. We've got this contrast going on. Another question. Why does the author stress the coincidental nature of Ruth's arrival in Boaz's field? It's like he's going out of his way to say it's a coincidence. Surely this is to show that it's not a coincidence at all. Maybe you could even call it a little bit of sarcasm. This was sovereignly arranged by God. Ruth had no idea where, where would be a good place to glean. She doesn't know where Boaz is, doesn't know who Boaz is, but she just happens upon this field. That was God directing her there. That was God's grace and his sovereignty, bringing her to the right field. Because what kind of man is Boaz? He's a godly man. He's an extremely kind and good man, as we can tell from our passage. And he is the perfect man to safeguard Ruth and to care for Ruth and Naomi. Now, Boaz addresses Ruth as his daughter. What does this tell us about Boaz? Well, certainly that's a term of care. He's trying to assure her, you're, you're safe with this field. I'll take care of you. But it's also a term that probably indicates that she, he's far older than she. I mean, he's old enough to be her father. That's why he calls her daughter. Now, in this, we can see how is the Lord providing for Ruth and Naomi and their distress? And it is a great distress. They've, they've lost all their providers, the men in their household. They come to a land. Naomi, or they come back to Bethlehem. Naomi owns land, but certainly it's not productive yet. It's going to take some time before they can live off of it. They, they're, they're destitute. How does the Lord provide? He leads Ruth to glean in the field of a righteous and generous man who also happens to be a close kinsman. Our sovereign God knows how to take care of his own. He knows how to take care of those who do indeed come under his wings or under his garment for refuge. That's what we see here. Now we're not going to read the rest of we're not going to read the rest of chapter 2, but Boaz actually does even more than what we've seen thus far. He lets Ruth as she returns to his field, he lets Ruth eat from the food that the servants are eating from. He allows her to take some of the food home. And when gleaning, he 
has her take not just what drops or is missed by the harvesters, but even from what's already harvested and bundled. He says, let her take from that. He wants to make sure that she's totally and abundantly provided for. This is not required by Old Testament law, by the way. He's going above and beyond. Now, Ruth gleans for all the barley harvest and for all the wheat harvest. She works hard for many days. That's one of the things that's very obvious about Ruth. She's a hard worker. She beats out her gleanings. She takes it home to Naomi. She does this for two months. And through her labor and through Boaz's kind generosity, God graciously provides for the two widows. If this were the end of the story, it would be a great testament to God's grace. But we are not done. Let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 118. So this is the whole chapter. Let's look at it. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Excuse me. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first, by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you, and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now, just amazing, amazing section here. Let's observe the details. Naomi has her daughter-in-law follow a series of commands. And we see that at the beginning of the passage. She says, make yourself look nice. Show up at this barley, barley winnowing party. And after Boaz is merry from feasting, notice where he goes to sleep. And when no one is around, uncover his feet, lie there. And when he wakes up, speak to him, following whatever he tells you to do. Now those directions may sound a little weird. 
and they are actually a little weird, but there is also something amazing happening here, as we'll see. Ruth does exactly as her mother commands, and when Boaz awakes and asks in the dark who this woman is, Ruth identifies herself and then makes a request. She says, spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now the word for covering here is the same word used in chapter 2 to describe Yahweh's wings, or Yahweh's covering under which Ruth sought refuge. So Ruth's request to Boaz could be translated, spread your wings over your maid, or spread your garment over your maid. She gives a reason too for this request, for you are a close relative. Now what does that close relative relationship have to do with anything? Well, it appears that Ruth and Naomi are invoking a certain provision from God in the law, in the law of Moses, regarding widows. In Israel, when a man died childless, this was a great tragedy, because without an heir, that man's name, the family name, would pass away from Israel, and the family inheritance would eventually be given to someone outside of the family. When there's no male heir left, this is a great tragedy. Also, in addition to that, the women in the deceased man's household, they would no longer have a provider. So it was a terrible thing for there to be no man left in a household. And to protect against this situation, God gave Israel the law of leveret marriage, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 25. According to the law of leveret marriage, when there was no male heir left, and there is a widow, the, or when, when there is a, a widow for a, a man in a household, that deceased man's closest unmarried relative was to marry the widow and have children with her. The firstborn of this leveret marriage would be considered the son of the deceased man, so that that man's name would live on in Israel, and the inheritance would pass on to, uh, to that son. But the other children of the marriage, they would belong to the name and inheritance of the new husband. This was God's provision to allow uh, names and family inheritances not to pass away in Israel. Now, Ruth appears to be invoking this leveret marriage principle with Boaz, saying, I'd like you to do according to what the law says. I'd like you to raise up children for the deceased husband. Now, notice Boaz's reaction to Ruth's request. He thanks her, and he says this is an even greater kindness than at the first. He says he will do it as long as the other relatives of Ruth, other relative, one closer relative, does not want to redeem Ruth first even swears to her by Yahweh. Now, I just used the term redeem. We see redeem in our passage. What does redeem mean? What is redemption? Well, that's kind of a common term for Christians to use, but we need to know where it comes from. The word redeem more literally means to buy back, to buy or to buy back. In the Old Testament, this was a common concept impoverished Israelites who were sold into slavery, they could be redeemed or bought back for a certain price. Or if a poor Israelite had to sell his land, a relative could redeem that land by buying it back for him or redeeming it. Redeeming was even part of the law of leveret marriage. The land inheritance of the deceased husband would literally need to be bought back or redeemed along with the widow's widowed wife being married. So because of these literal meanings of redemption, this idea of buying back, redemption gains the idea, the figurative idea, of saving or restoring 
which is the way we commonly use it today. To redeem someone, or for a Christian to be redeemed, means to be saved, but more literally bought back. Now, Boaz has Ruth lie at his feet until morning, and then he sends her away while it's still pretty dark, making sure that no one can recognize her and that her visit remains unknown. But he does not send Ruth away empty-handed. He gives her six measures of barley to take home, which is probably a lot. We don't know exactly what measure means here, but probably translates the term sia, which would be about 60 to 80 pounds of barley. That's a lot of food. No doubt, no doubt she had to carry that on her back. When Ruth reports the outcome to Naomi, Naomi assures Ruth, that good man is going to take care of this issue today. Things are certainly looking up for the family of Ruth and Naomi. But let's ask another two interpretation questions. Why does Ruth approach Boaz the way that she does? I mean, this is a little bit weird, isn't it? Now, some have foolishly suggested that Ruth, in desperation or out of some pagan custom that she learned in Moab, she's trying to use immorality as a way to win over Boaz's love and protection. She's trying to seduce him. But for multiple reasons, that cannot be. For starters, Ruth and Naomi are not so desperate. They're already beneficiaries of Boaz's great generosity. They're provided for. They can get by. They don't need to resort to immorality. Also, Boaz and Ruth are both known for their righteousness. Boaz even says that to Ruth. That is totally inconsistent with her committing immorality here, or attempting to. And besides, the text clearly notes that she does not lie with him. She lies at his feet the whole night. There's nothing improper going on there. But what is going on here? Certainly, Ruth is requesting leveret marriage from Boaz, but why in this form? There are different explanations offered by interpreters. Some say that this was a custom at the time and that Boaz would have recognized it. This is how a woman would propose marriage to a man. But I think the answer that makes the most sense is that Ruth's mode of request actually reflects the request itself because she asks Boaz to spread his garment over her. And she symbolically arranges herself in a posture that shows that request. She uncovers his feet, which were undoubtedly covered by a garment that he was using to, as a blanket or something like that. She places herself at his feet so that he might cover her. There's symbolism going on here. It's exactly as she requested him. She says, hey, I'm uncovering your feet so that you can cover me. And that's basically how she's proposing marriage. It's interesting, this idea of covering with a garment is used elsewhere in the scripture in a way that is linked with marriage. We won't go there now, but Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16 verses 6 to 8, we have God speaking metaphorically of his marriage to Israel, to young virgin Israel, as his bride, and he describes it as spreading his skirt or spreading his wings or his garment over Israel. He says, I spread my garment over you and you became my wife. So there's this connection between spreading a garment and marriage. One commentator explains the metaphor of this enclosing with a garment in this way. I think this is helpful. Quote, all that a man is, is contained within his garment. All that he owns, all his powers, all his desires, all his needs, all his concerns. However, in marriage, a man opens his garment, spreading it over another, 
wrapping a wife in the same garment, and thereby taking upon himself what she owns, what she desires, and what she needs. Now under the same garment, they share everything. The man no longer cares just for himself, but he has added the cares of his wife to his own. He now cares for her. To spread one's garment over another, then, is a parallel metaphor to the two becoming one flesh. Unquote. So as I say, Ruth's proposal to Boaz is a symbolic depiction of the marriage metaphor, even given from Genesis 2. She essentially says to Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, the close, the close relative redeemer, marry me and cover me with your garment. In so doing, take me and my mother-in-law into your care. But why do this in the middle of the night? Okay, we get the picture, but why in the middle of the night? Well, it's not clear. Perhaps Naomi wanted privacy for Ruth and Boaz, a chance to speak to Boaz alone, but there definitely was risk here. This may not have been the wisest move. Again, sometimes the Bible reports things without approving things. There was risk to Ruth's reputation here. If she was discovered in the middle of the night, um, at, a, at a place where probably a whole bunch of men were, that would not have looked good for her. From the details of the passage, though, we can say, safely, nothing immoral or improper actually took place, and Boaz took special care to guard Ruth's reputation. He says, I don't want people thinking the wrong thing about her, so let's make sure that nobody else knows that she came. That wasn't Boaz being unscrupulous, that was him being kind. Now here's another question. Why does Boaz praise Ruth for what he calls this even greater kindness in, in her asking him to marry her? Why was that an even greater kindness? Well, I think we can give a few reasons. One, it was a kindness to Boaz, who as an older man, likely a widower, he probably had little prospect of remarriage, so she was being kind to him, but also it was a kindness to Naomi to make sure that Naomi was provided for. Ruth didn't just say, hey, I'm going to go look for the most handsome man I can find. Uh, it doesn't matter if she's able to provide for Naomi or not. That's not what Ruth did. She went and found somebody who would help Naomi. But it was also a kindness to Elimelech's family. By marrying specifically a kinsman and redeemer, Ruth made sure that the name and the land inheritance of Elimelech would not pass away. So this was a kindness from Ruth in multiple ways. But as we move on into chapter 4, Naomi is quite right about what Boaz will do. We're going to sum up now the rest of the book. We will look at just a little bit more text. In chapter 4, Boaz immediately sets about securing Ruth's redemption. It turns out that the closer kinsman redeemer is willing to buy the land but not willing to marry Ruth. So the redeemer gives up his right of redemption. and Boaz takes the right, he redeems Ruth, and he redeems Naomi's land. Ruth and Boaz are married. Ruth conceives. God enables her to do so. And then after nine months, gives birth to a son, a son to carry on Elimelech's name. And notice what verses 14 to 17 report in the birth of this son. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. 
The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, father of David. Notice quickly here, whom do the women say was really redeemed in all this? Not Ruth, but Naomi. Naomi has a redeemer. And for whom do they say a son was born? Not Ruth. I mean, that's true. It was Ruth's son. But they say a son has been born to Naomi. And what a special son he would be because he was the forefather of God's chosen king, David. So consider how much has changed for Naomi in this account. You know, some people remark that actually Naomi is the character most mentioned in this book. She's mentioned more than Ruth, the title character. Is this story really more about Naomi than it is about Ruth? We have an unimaginable tragedy that takes place in chapter 1. Naomi is just distraught and only can see bitterness moving forward. But by the end of chapter 4, what do we see in Naomi? Incredible joy. Boaz redeems Ruth and by extension Naomi and both women are able to dwell securely. Now there's much we can say here in commenting on the righteousness and faith of Ruth or of Boaz. We can even talk about how Naomi's faith which was waning or been colored by bitterness it has been restored by the end of the book. But I'd say this record, this book, this account is not really about, it's not ultimately about Naomi, Ruth, or Boaz. Because who is the real redeemer? Here, who is the real restorer in this account? It's God. This story, this account, this record is really about God because he is the true redeemer and savior. As the sovereign God, as the good God, he's the one who brought the food back into the land of Canaan after a time of famine. He's the one who brought Ruth to faith, a very unlikely thing, or what seemed unlikely, in order that Ruth might follow Naomi and minister to Naomi in an extravagant way. That was God's doing. God is the one who brought Ruth, specifically directed Ruth, into Boaz's field so the two might meet, so that Boaz might provide for her and for Naomi, and so that the two might marry, and Naomi would receive back a son in place of the sons she lost. This is who God is. He is the Redeemer. He is the Provider. He is the Sovereign and Generous God. But He doesn't just provide for believers during the sojourn of their lives, as wonderful and as great as that is. He is the necessary Redeemer for eternal life. Because we all need, the Bible makes quite clear, we all need redemption from sin and from death. We all live under the curse of sin, which we've inherited from our forefathers, even from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we need a redeemer. We need somebody to buy us back from death and from the penalty of sin, which is the eternal wrath of a holy God. And we have such a redeemer. Where? In whom? In God himself. Listen to what Job says. Job says very memorably in Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see, 
and not another. Job is articulating his hope in the resurrection because he knows he has a redeemer in God. More than Ruth and Naomi needed a temporal redeemer, they needed, and we all need, an everlasting redeemer to save us from the curse of sin and death, to bring us out from a doomed people destined for eternal wrath and to provide for us eternal life, eternal life with God. And only God can redeem us that way. God is more powerful and more generous than Boaz. He's the one who actually caused Boaz to be generous. And he raised up, he was actually in the process of raising up that chosen redeemer in the days of Ruth. Because her son, who is also in a sense the son of Naomi, Obed was the forefather of, of Jesse, who was the forefather of David, who was the, God's chosen king in Israel. And it was from the line of David that God was raising up a greater redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. God sent his son into the world to buy back, to redeem those who repent and believe in him. Those who turn from their sin, who leave the cursed land and idolatrous land of Moab, as it were, to seek shelter under God and under Christ. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 verses 7 to 8, and rehearsing the great blessings that come in salvation to those who know Jesus, it says, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That was the price. That was the price of our being bought. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You know, it's interesting, Boaz is able to be the redeemer that he is because he was a wealthy man. But God is, in a sense, way more wealthy. He has abundant riches. He is able to secure the redemption, the costly redemption that, that we needed, and then to generously provide for us in a way greater than even Boaz provided for Ruth and Naomi. When we repent, when we turn from our sins to follow after Christ, Jesus buys us back and he restores us. And it doesn't matter where we come from. Jew, Gentile, former God-hater and worldling, or self-righteous hypocrite raised in the church but never really knowing God, anyone who seeks God in faith can be cleansed and reconciled to God, bought back by God, because he is the great Redeemer. He's the only Redeemer, ultimately. And he offers that redemption. He invites all of us to participate in that redemption and be saved. So already we're seeing some application from this text now. Hopefully you're seeing that. But let me just maybe drive it home a little bit more specifically for you. We see God as the great redeemer, the great provider, the sovereign and good redeemer in the book of Ruth. But what difference should that make in our lives today? Let me give you two questions to consider. First, is Christ your Redeemer from sin and death? The redemption we see in this passage, it parallels and it connects to that greater redemption we see revealed in the rest of Scripture, and that is the redemption from sin and death. But is it your redemption? Do you have an interest in that redemption? Do you have a kinsman Redeemer greater than Boaz? You'll know if you've repented of your sins and have trusted in Christ to be the one to reconcile you to God. 
This is the only way for your sins to be covered and for you to inherit eternal life. This text encourages you to shelter under your merciful God just like Ruth did. But have you done so? Is he your shelter? Is he the only way that you'll be brought into heaven? Be brought into the new heavens and the new earth? Brought into the kingdom of God? Not your own righteousness, not rituals, but God's mercy as shown to you in Christ. Again, it doesn't matter where you come from. You can be a Moabitist. You can be a former idolater like Ruth. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed in your life. God is able to redeem you if you will come to him. So, do so. Come to the great Redeemer. If you haven't, in a fundamental way, come to the great Redeemer and find true refuge for your soul. That's what the book of Ruth encourages you to do. But if you have, you say, oh, I know the Redeemer. I am under his wings. Well, do you trust in him? Have you fallen into hard times? I think we all have to a certain extent, right? But have you, fall, have you fallen into hard times due to your own sin? Or maybe just due to the mysterious sovereignty of God? Well, what do you do now? If you have the Redeemer, if the great Redeemer is your Redeemer, then you're safe. Look to Him. Look to Him to provide for you. He will do that, just as He did for Naomi and Ruth. He will do even those mysterious acts of providence, like bringing you right into the field that you need to go at the right time. You say, oh, but it's gonna be, I'm in a hard place right now. Can God, can God still provide for me? Of course He can. Look what He did for Ruth and Naomi. He won't provide for you necessarily in the exact same way that He did for them, but He will. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry. Your Father knows. Your Father loves you. Your Father is going to take care of you. Or to bring back the marriage metaphor. If you've been connected to your Redeemer by union with Christ, which is, which is really like a marriage, don't you think your husband's going to want to take care of you? He's brought you under his garment. His concerns are for you. He loves you. He's committed to you. He will take care of you. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? He is not such a bad husband that he'll say, Ah, she'll get by. Ah, she needs some stuff, but I'll get it later. He's not such a husband. He's the great kinsman redeemer. He spread his garment over you. He will not fail you. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's good. As Job says, you have a redeemer who lives. So look to him. Rest in him by faith. Yes, even in this time, this continued time of trial, the coronavirus, even through sickness, even through difficult spiritual circumstances, even through persecution, he is the Redeemer who has brought you under his garment. Cling to him. He will take care of you. He'll provide for you in the right time and in the right way. Well, that's all for this week. That's all that I have to share with you. If you have a comment or question about what you've heard today, please feel free to post it in the chat, in the YouTube chat. I'd love to interact with you afterwards about it. Or you can send me an email at davkaposha at gmail.com and I'll respond and answer any questions as best I can. Now, next time we meet, Lord willing, we'll be on the East Coast. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. That'll be good. And uh, next time we meet, we're moving on to the book of 1 Samuel. We are going to look at the last judge at the beginning part of the life of the last judge whom God raises up to deliver Israel, and that's Samuel. 
thank you for being with me today. Let me close our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the beautiful truth that is unveiled in this account. Not only that you are the sovereign and good provider who will take care of people in life, those who look to you, but God, that you are the great Redeemer, that you save even from sin and death, which is what we need. Ever since the garden, Lord, ever since our rebellion in the garden in Adam and Eve, Lord, we have needed a Redeemer, someone who can deliver us from the devil, from from sin, and from death. And there was no hope apart from you. You had to be our Redeemer. You were the only one who could redeem, and you've done so in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your amazing redemption work of the cross. You paid the price, the price of sin, which was the eternal wrath of God, even the shedding of your own blood. You paid everything off for those who believe in you, and you even gave them your own righteousness. You gave that to me. You gave that to those at Calvary and those listening today who know you. What a wonderful gift. What an an undeserved favor, an immensely undeserved favor. Oh God, help us to praise you for that, to walk in gratefulness before you before that, to walk a worthy life before you because of that, and to make your glory known to the nations even to those who do not yet know you. Lord, a wonderful truth in this account also that we didn't even have time to talk about is how even in Old Testament times you were drawing, you were looking to draw all people to yourself, even the Gentiles. Lord, that is still true today and we want to see that more. We want to see that happen. So make us bold and loving witnesses, servants to others even during this time so they can see that you are the great Redeemer and that you offer such wonderful redemption. Lord, help us to trust you in an ongoing way during this time. Because we are under your wings, we know you'll take care of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all uh, again for your time and look forward to seeing you again next week. Again, if you have any questions or comments, please post them in the chat. All right, Magda, you mentioned a question. Why wasn't Boaz the kinsman redeemer to Naomi? Why didn't he marry Naomi? Was she too old to have any more children? That's a good question. I think... Uh, the second question you ask is probably part of the answer. Uh, she was indicating earlier in the book that she didn't seem like she could have any more children. Or if she could, it would be a long time since they were grown. So yeah, it appears that it wouldn't have been profitable for Boaz to marry Naomi, but he could provide for Naomi by marrying Ruth. But yeah, that's a good question. Many of you are mentioning your thanks. You're most welcome, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, uh, Juan and Amy, specifically for your your prayers and your well wishes for our travels. Yeah, if it's Emma with one M, yeah. So she's unique in that way, and, uh, and I'm really, I love her for it. You're most welcome, um, Linda and Vera, Roy. Thanks for being here. Any other questions or comments any of you would like to mention? Yeah, praise to God. Thank you for those words, Don. Well, all right. I'll sign off for now, but again, if you have any questions, email me at 
daftaposha at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for your words, uh, Mark and Dwayne and Judy. It's a pleasure, of course, to, to go through the word with you. I pray that it ministers to you and that the Spirit ministers to you and encourages and transforms you. But I'm signing off for now. Lord willing, we'll see you all again soon.